What's going on, everyone? It's Danny Haifong, of course, contributing editor to the Black Agenda Report and your co-host of The Left Lens. I'm just going to let people come on here. Uh, how's everyone doing this evening? Well, wherever you are, it's evening where I am out in the East Coast here in the United States. It is tropical weather. It is raining almost every day. It's humid as hell. I also got that sweet, sweet blood. I don't know if you can relate that the bugs really like. So uh, being outside at this time is actually cool. <laughs> actually quite a lot. I got to put on so much bug spray and all that. But I, I plan on talking a little bit more personally with you all today. Uh, the title of the stream is To Honor the Dead, Fight for the Living. We're going to talk a little bit about Cuba, Haiti, and the recent debates going on uh, with the so-called progressive left, but I will let people come in first. I don't do this very often, and the reason for that is I work. Yeah, that's true. I am mosquito food, for real. It is really bad. Uh, I'm not just mosquito food. I'm also black fly. I killed a black fly. I'm, I'm out here in New York City. I killed one on my leg. Never happens, usually. You know, they're really hard to uh, swat, but I killed one on my leg because I had so many coming at me. It, it's crazy, but... Um, my my luck. But anyway, I'm going to let people come on. Uh, for any subscriber here to my Patreon, uh, please, you know, just make yourself known because I will uh, answer your questions first. This is sort of like an ask me anything. I don't do these things very often. I can't get on live very often. And the reason for that is I, I work a full-time job. Actually, economics are quite stressful right now in my particular situation. And so uh, there's a lot of, of work happening. Um, I got to work a lot. I'm in the social services field. I'm a social worker by trade. And so I'm on here, though. You know, you can always support me. So people who are coming on, you know, be sure to support uh, my Patreon. Of course, throw money to Black Agenda Report, who I contribute to weekly. Um, <clears throat> so anyone, for, you know, I'll be... If anyone has, thank you, thank you, appreciate the audio. Anyone who has, you know, the audio comments, anyone who has anything they want to ask, I will try to get to, I'll try to scroll through. But first, uh, let me just talk to you about a little bit about myself and why I named the stream what I did. And it's because there are a lot of questions, you know, I get this, uh, I have, I, I'm on social media, I have Twitter, I have Instagram, you know, I'm on here kind of, right, uh, on behalf, but also on behalf of Black Agenda Report, but also for, you know, myself, I've been kind of heading the YouTube project because it's, it's a tough thing to manage and I get questions, right? And, and people wonder why my politics are the way they are, why? Why do I speak about certain things? Racism, right? Why am I dividing the working class by speaking about white supremacy? Why am I talking about China when China is just a quote-unquote authoritarian country? Why do I do these things, right? I get a lot. I get messages about this. Um, I get quite entertaining emails a lot of the times about, you know, China is going to be an imperialist evil greater than the United States. Just you wait or why do you talk, you know, again, why do you talk about racism? Because you're dividing the working class. And so I guess I would like to share with you all, and it's related to what's going on in Cuba. It's related to what's going on in Haiti. It's related to imperialism. I'd like to share with you my, my experience, why 
growing up really informed my politics, how my early experiences informed my politics, because I think it's very important. We also have lost some dear comrades in recent weeks. Uh, re- most recently for me, Abdus Lukman, who I never got the honor to meet, but um, just knowing his wife, Jackie, knowing Lukman Nation, being able to speak to him and follow him, you know, that one hit hard. And it hit hard in particular because, you know, we just lost just a couple of years ago, uh, just about two years ago now, we lost Bruce Dixon over at Black Agenda Report, who was someone who was very important to my political development and someone who actually helped me a lot when I was coming, before I even came into Black Agenda Report. He was just that type of guy. I mean, we need more of the way that people like Bruce Dixon and Abdus Lukman related to the people, uh, open to questions, open to debate, and also uh, just really wanting to move people's consciousness to a higher level. That's where I'm at. So you don't really see me oftentimes. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to like get into debates and try to I don't know, own people or whatever it is, but I'm here for the people and I'm here to talk politics. I'm here to struggle though, more so. And to do it, you know, my work is all about struggling for the people. It's all about being accountable to the people. And when I say the people, I mean the working class, the oppressed, uh, those who are under the gun of imperialism and those who face the triple evils that Martin Luther King talked about, racism, capitalism, and militarism on a regular basis, because I consider myself one of those people, right? And I think we have a lot of voices on here, on YouTube, social media, who treat politics like a brand, who treat it like it's about themselves. And I wrote a piece recently in Black Agenda Report that maybe I will read from a bit where I asked the question, who are independent journalists accountable to? We know, I know people and I love, you know, I, uh, whether it's Margaret Kimberly, Glenn Ford, or whether we're talking about other folks who do this independent media work at the Gray Zone or uh, Lee Camp, these folks, Jimmy Dore, all of them, you know, they, they're doing their best to be accountable for the people. And that's where my journalism, I feel, is uh, geared towards. It's not geared towards my own popularity or anything like that. When I say support my Patreon, it really means supporting me to be able to now and in the future be more independent and not have to spend really, I would say, 60, 70% of my time uh, away from this kind of work, right? Because I feel like um, I have gotten a, a really big head of steam in terms of my writing quality my analysis, and I want to continue to contribute that to the people and to be involved in these struggles. And I'm talking now just to get people in here. And uh, (laughs) will you be my guide when I go to China? Let uh, I would love to do that. I I need a guide too, though, because unfortunately, and one this is one of my goals is to be able to learn Mandarin, be able to learn the language so I can go there and be more independent. But uh, welcome to any subscribers of a Patreon. Welcome to any subscribers of this channel. Hit the like, do all of that. Thank you for coming. 
And so I'm just going to get started. Uh, what do I mean to honor the dead? You know, I, I talked about Bruce Dixon and Abdus Lukman, and, you know, there, there's plenty more where that uh, comes from because we have a lot of folks who have been slain, a lot of our revolutionaries who have been slain, whether it's from health or, you know, the stress of the system or whether it's from outright repression, as we've seen with, uh, you know, so many of our, our political prisoners behind the walls. Uh, we have sick political prisoners, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Leonard Peltier, Russell Maroon Schultz, these revolutionaries uh, in the Black Liberation, Indigenous Liberation movements. Uh, they, you know, they're at risk of dying in prison. And uh, we cannot forget Julian Assange, of course, who's at risk of dying in prison because, I mean, all of them, all political prisons in the United States, and the Western orbit that uh, Julian Assange out in the UK, but we know that he's actually a U.S. political prisoner. Um, you know, they they're at risk of dying in prison and being because they're being tortured. Uh, they're being punished for their political ideology and their activity. So we have to honor the living. We have to fight for the living. We have to fight for them, right? We have to fight for them. And our journalism, our activism, has to be geared to them. It has to be geared to moving people to a higher level so we have more people, and not even just more people, but that we have strong, conscious, politically conscious people entering the movement, entering this struggle, so they can be effective, develop leaders in the struggle at the grassroots level. That's what our journalism should be about, and that's what I'm about. Uh, when we have people like Vouch and all these other so-called, quote-unquote, bread tubers and whatnot, uh, and then TYT, all these news organizations, right? They're, that's not what they're about. They're about reproducing themselves first and doing what's politically expedient at any given moment. And that's not what we're about here. That's not what I'm about. So I just want to make that clear. And I get a lot of questions about my politics, right? What why, why do I fight against racism? A lot of people assume they look at me and they see, I don't know, they look at my skin color, say, you're a white guy, right? Um, and, you know, I just want to say that the reason why early in my experience, I was very hyper aware of something like white supremacy, right? This thing that everyone says is divisive, right? Racism, you can't talk, you're dividing the working class. And a lot of socialists, a lot of communists believe this. Well, Anyone who grows up in the United States, and it doesn't matter what side you're on, you could be the one being enveloped in racism, or you could be the one who is being targeted by racism. Um, hold on one second. I'm seeing some light flickering here. Huh. Hold on one second, guys. Um, yeah, so it's part of the experience. I mean, if you want to deny it, you don't want to talk about it, that's on you. But I'm always going to talk about it. And the reason why that is, is I can just give, you know, it's not even just, you know, I've had a lot of people in my life die from an early age because of racism, uh, very dear friends. Um, and you could say, okay, well, these aren't direct racist attacks, right? I'm not saying that they were lynched or that they were attacked. But because of the conditions of this system are racist in the sense of institutional, of the system of capitalism and imperialism being inherently racist and how that 
really informs the oppression and exploitation of the masses. I've had many friends who have died. I mean, you know, I, I just growing up, all of the young people in my life that have died were black. I mean, whether it was a, a good friend who died of an asthma attack on the basketball court, whether it was a good friend who was sh shot accidentally by another good friend, just they were playing with a gun, uh, whether it was from suicide, right? Uh, I feel like those early experiences, all of those happened before I was 21 years of age. And uh, that taught me at an early age, right? It, outcomes were different for people who were not white. None of my white friends really went through that. Even my a lot of my white friends were working class themselves, but they didn't have to deal with that kind of predetermined outcome, right? They didn't have, they were struggling economically, but their existence wasn't a threat. And that has always been something that sat with me. And it sat with me not because I was just looking at it, but it sat with me because I knew what it was like to be jumped for being quote unquote Asian, a, a chink, a gook, whatever it was. I knew what it was like to, you know, be punked every morning. You know, I'm trying to shoot around, have my, have my ball taken away, kicked, you know, whatever, stolen from me at any given time. Those kind of incidents because of who I was, you know, and always targeted by teachers. You're this, you're the smartest, you're the model minority, like the, I've heard these things directly told to me. And I know how they not only made me feel, but how they shaped my experience, they shaped my material condition in this society. Also growing up with, you know, a Vietnamese mother who struggles a lot with mental illness, struggles a lot um, with what that experience was like, uh, so-called fleeing, Vietnam, uh, being a quote unquote refugee, like all these things, uh, which are, are, are huge to my experience, uh, really made it an, a natural thing for me to when I was exposed to the literature of Huey P. Newton, when I was exposed to Black Panther Party liter literature, Black Liberation Movement literature, Black uh, Left literature, it just it just clicked because it was that literature, it was those organizations, it was the black movement that was one of the few in the United States that actually expressed solidarity with, with other people who were experiencing oppression, right? Whether it was here or abroad. You may see some lightning out here, guys, because as I said before, New York City is now a tropical place. But, um, you know, I wanted to just share that with you because I really do believe to honor the dead, to honor those like Bruce Dixon and Abdus Lukman. We have to fight for the living. We have to be curious about all people's oppression. We have to extend solidarity to oppressed people abroad. We have to always oppose U.S. imperialism. And we have to always talk about what is impeding the class struggle right now. And I can tell you, it is not racism. Racism, I mean, it is not the discussion about racism. It is not the act of talking about racism. But actually, it's white supremacy itself has always been the hugest barrier 
to class struggle in the United States. And that is historically demonstrated time and time again in each stage of the U.S.'s development that there has been an intentional uh, uh, intentional policy of racism, institutional, which ensures that working the working class that oppress people here in this United States are exposed to one of the most vile ways of not only thinking, but of being, right? Uh, to live in a society steeped in racism, steeped in this dehumanization of Black people, of Indigenous people, and of anyone who is deemed, quote unquote, non-white. That has led to not only the justification of so many wars over the course of the U.S.'s history, but also uh, it really sits at the foundation of the United States itself. So I'm sure none of you all who have listened to me before are hearing anything really new, but I just wanted to open up and say that those who want to talk about racism as being a distraction, a division, any of that really are not speaking from a place of reality when it comes to the United States. Because I don't care where you sit, white supremacy is literally at the core of what you have gone through, whether you're on, whether on your towing the line uh, on the side of racism or you're a target of racism or you're towing both lines because we know that nothing about United States and capitalism and this empire is uh, disconnected, right? We are always... Uh, living through contradictions and navigating contradictions. Uh, nothing is linear, right? And, and that's the philosophy that I have adopted over the course of my study of Marxism and socialism. So I just wanted to open with that first. Uh, you know, I know there's a lot to talk about with Cuba and Haiti, right? We just saw another destructive event in Haiti with the assassination of Jovenel Moise. And it's part of this long process of colonization in Haiti and the response to decolonization, the response to the first revolution in the world happened to be led by, you know, slaves, African slaves and, and, and who were, um, you know, imported there, forced there by the French and, and by other colonial powers to, uh, you know, then lead this great revolution in 18 that was victorious in 1804, only to be punished from thereafter from the French in the United States. The U.S. occupied Haiti in the early <clears throat> 1900s, 1915. And I think that was almost 20 years, tens of thousands of Haitians killed. And then after that, one puppet dictatorship after another, siphoning off Haiti's resources to foreign multinational corporations, mainly the United States, 2011, Hillary Clinton has to fly in to enforce the OASs, the Organization of the American States Diktats, to allow, I think it was Sweet Mickey at that time, people can correct me if I'm wrong, to, uh, I think, to, to run in a quote-unquote runoff where he wasn't even in the running at all in that election, 
and he ends up being the president, Sweet Mickey, and he was a disaster. You had the UN occupation there around the same time, bringing cholera. Haiti has been plundered by the United States to the point where workers there are some of the lowest paid in the world. Hunger is rampant. We know what the earthquake did, but we know that austerity and capitalism in the United States and its enforcement of austerity is the problem there. So we have to just be on the lookout on what developments are going on there, but we have to be very clear that we are against U.S. intervention, U.S. militarism, the national police in Haiti already receive millions of dollars of support from the United States. And we know that's going to go up as things in Haiti become more unstable. I mean, there's been protests there for years now, uh, since 2017, 18, there's been protests there on the regular and the United States wants to see that curtailed and they'll exploit anything. And they could very well be behind this assassination or at least be involved in some way but we don't have that evidence yet. We can only say that the United States is deeply involved in the Haitian polity and we need to demand that the United States get out, right? And so it's very important now, and I'll just get to Cuba really quick. Then I'll answer questions um, from you all. I'll scroll up. Um I just want everyone, I mean, all these from AOC to Vouch to whoever else it is, just stop. You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, this is the problem with the quote unquote progressive left in the United States. The arrogance, the hubris, the inability to objectively approach a situation that they do not understand it's so much easier, and again, here comes the racism word, it's so much easier to lean on racism, to lean on imperial hubris than it is to actually investigate what the heck is going on. I mean, I've been to Cuba, I only went for five days, right? So I didn't get the grand experience. My wife, she went for a couple of weeks, uh, a few, few years before I did. I know several people have gone for many, for much longer than that. You know people have been educated there, Havana University. I um, I have contacts there. You know, it it's it just blows my mind. And, and there's already been a lot of work done on this question of how the United States, how people in the United States view Cuba. I believe that honestly, the left in the United States, if anything, has done a lot better of a job being in solidarity with Venezuela and Cuba and others than elsewhere, right? Whether we're talking about Syria or China or Russia, or, uh, you know, we can go on and on Eritrea. We can go on and on and on about the countries, Libya during the 2011 intervention, Zimbabwe to this day, right? The, the left in the United States, the progressive left has done a very poor job being in solidarity with those countries, but a better job in Latin America. And I think that's in, Caribbean, in the Caribbean. I think that's because it's been viewed as the backyard of the United States, there's some closer proximity and there has been more work done. I mean, the Vence Ramos Brigade in the United States began in 1969. So there's been literally like more than 50 years of solidarity work between the two. And unlike the Soviet Union, which fell in 1991, unlike the Sino-Soviet split, which occurred um, in the 1960s, there's been a lot of time where it's literally been just a matter of understanding Cuba from the perspective of how the U.S. approaches Cuba. 
So there's been a lot more opportunities for people in the United States and the progressive left here and in the West to get it, right? And I think there are more people who do get it. But now we see these protests that have jumped off in Havana and they're relatively small. The New York Times says hundreds, of course, Reuters, they say thousands, right? But when you see it, they're relatively small. If anyone's ever been to protests in the United States, and if you've ever been in part of left organizations, they tend to overblow things, right? We, we say when there's hundreds of people, we say oh, more than a thousand. When there's really just like a, a couple hundred. That, that's what's being done here with these demonstrations. And we know what the politics of them are. We know that there are people protesting outside of the embassy in D.C. saying, you know, intervene, intervene. Uh, I think it was a mayor. Was it the mayor? My Who was it? A mayor in Florida, Florida mayor. He's a gusano, a worm. That means worm in Spanish, everyone. If you want to know, it means you're a worm. It means you're a traitor. It means you're against the revolution. You're against the sovereignty of Cuba. If you're a gusano, that's a political term used during the revolutionary struggle to describe those who are basically what the comprador, neocolonial classes everywhere else. Uh, you're a traitor. You're a class traitor. You're a traitor to the nation. And, um, you know, the protests, unfortunately, right, um, are a byproduct. And I, I'm not going to say they're a byproduct of sanctions because, to be honest, if there was no U.S. meddling politically, there was no U.S. AID, there are not, none of these NGOs, if there wasn't this huge, hugely powerful um, Miami Cuban, Florida Cuban, and and, and Cuban American, uh, very you know Cuban American population that's very close to the United States government. I mean, these were folks who were during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, I mean, the Bay of Pigs, I should say, during the Bay of Pigs, they were the ones being armed. Their their generation, they were being armed to commit terrorism and violence in Cuba to try to overthrow the government. They tried to do it again in the 80s. Didn't really work out for them. You know, if that didn't exist, I don't think that these protests would be happening at all. That's just my opinion. It's called that a hot take. The sanctions do have a huge impact, though. When I was in Cuba, I spoke to many people about this. Because you can see, and I was walking through Havana, and I was talking to people, and they would point to buildings, and they would say, you see that paint chipping there? You see that building that looks like it needs a, a, not only a paint job, but probably needs a replace, you know, a, a lot of things fixed, um, the foundation, et cetera. It's like the reason why we can't do this, we can't import concrete. We can't import the paint because what the sanctions do, there's so many little stipulations. The sanctions actually oftentimes force companies abroad, international companies, to do very expensive things just to trade with Cuba. So if you want to avoid, you can't, you, you can get around the sanctions, right? But it's going to cost you a whole lot. So it, you either pay the huge fine for violating the sanctions, which most companies won't do and can't do. It doesn't, it doesn't matter um, uh, whether you are, you know, private, public, you can't pay the debt that the U.S. is going to levy on you. Or you can go around the sanctions and choose a different method of distribution. For example, a lot of uh, Cubans would tell me that it was uh, the fact that there you couldn't enter Cuban ports, right? Or certain Cuban ports. So you would have to travel around the country um, 
in a different direction, which is just inefficient and just it's just not going to happen. It, it ends up costing a whole lot more just to trade with Cuba. And so there's just so much disincentive. And um, luckily, China and Russia have stepped up a lot because they don't believe in sanctions and they, they don't believe in unilateral coercive measures uh, and they firmly oppose them. So China and Russia, um, to the extent that they can, do uh, negate the sanctions and trade with Cuba. And it's been a huge lifeline over the last several years. So the sanctions have a huge impact, billions of dollars. I think it's like $3 billion alone in the last few years have been lost in just medicine, right? And so all these right-wing Gusanos, the Cuban, the American lobby, the whatever it is, right? They these protesters, they're saying, oh, the sanctions aren't a problem. They're not that much of a problem. Cuba can trade with anyone. You can see the clause where it negates medicines. That's a lie. <laughs> okay. It's a huge lie that <clears throat> med medicines are not affected. I met people in Cuba who would tell me that, yeah, doctors can't have access to syringes, for example, for diabetic medication, et cetera. And, and that has had a huge impact. They've had to create them themselves. And so when you are unable to import certain things at the tune of billions of dollars over the course of, you know, a year's long period, you fall behind and are unable to grow the economy. So yes, Cuba remains an impoverished country by GDP terms, PPP terms, whatever you want to look at is impoverished. But the Cuban revolution, what they've done is they've said, well, we are going to ensure people's basic needs are met. And then we will try to tackle the larger economic situation. Um, I can't lie. I mean, I know that there are problems in the sense that this new generation, the younger generation, they don't know what it was. They don't know what it was. They don't know what war is like. They don't they they know what it's like to live under embargo, but they don't know what it took to win the revolution by personal experience, right? So there has been unrest and disruption when it comes to the youth and trying to develop young people's revolutionary consciousness. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And actually Cuba's opened up a lot, not just economically, but also politically and trying to get young people involved and also uh, trying to get them more independently involved, even from the Communist Party, although the Communist Party will never be undermined. But there's been different approaches there that I learned about when I was there a couple years ago that I think have done a good job in the sense that these protests that the Gusanos are leading and the, the United States is trying to support doesn't really have popular support and you can see it. And, and I don't think it will be very effective. Um, I think it'll be mostly a social media campaign, but it's very possible that this will, uh, roll back some of the progress that's been made in terms of highlighting the embargo and the sanctions and their impact in terms of how the United people in the United States view Cuba, which then leaves people, if, if the politics move to the right on Cuba, it leaves Cuba vulnerable to possible uh, future intervention, for example. And of course, with uh, any color revolution, there's also this need to defend the country and that takes away resources from other things, right? So when you're already under sanctions and you have to deal with a color revolution, 
then that in and of itself harms Cuba and harms the Cuban revolution. So all solidarity to Cuba, you know, um, you know, Cuba see Yankee. No, we need to stand with Cuba. Cuba has a higher, uh, life expectancy than the United States, lower infant mortality rate, best education in the Latin America, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, one of the uh, best healthcare systems in the world. I learned that they, when I was there, I learned that they have a, a medication for diabetic ulcers made from some kind of spider venom. And it's a cream and it heals the ulcers without uh, needing surgery. So I'm sure some of you have heard of the lung cancer vaccine, which prevents uh, symptoms from proliferating and therefore prolongs uh, people's lives who have lung cancer. They also have a diabetic medication, which is just, I mean, Cuban science is just amazing. Socialist science is amazing. Where yes, uh, it actually heals ulcers and then prevents surgeries and saves probably thousands of people's lives. Sugar is a huge thing in Cuba, guys. So you know, it's like it was like the cash crop, the product of slavery uh, in Cuba. And so to be able to treat diabetes in this way is revolutionary and revolutionary for me because I work with a lot of seniors who die all the time from needing surgery for their diabetic ulcers. Because if you get amputations of your foot, your toes, it only gets worse. And it does lead to death, infection, and then death. So incredible stuff. So Cuba needs to be defended. Cuban homelessness, zero guys. So 90% plus home ownership rate. Uh, I think the highest in Cuba that you can pay in your income and in rent is like 2%. It's something just egregiously low. And so if you're not going to defend a socialist country that puts the people's needs first, then you're on the wrong side. And there's so many people, AOC, others who have shown their color, true colors, as they do all the time when it comes to questions of imperialism and have failed to defend Cuba. So in effect, we need to defend the Cuban revolution. And uh, we also, for the larger struggle against imperialism, we need to understand that Cuba falls within the context of this global struggle for liberation, for freedom, for a world where imperialist hegemons do not dominate and the capitalist class no longer dominates for the sole purpose of their own profits right that's what we are fighting against so if you don't stand with cuba you, you're not really for that you know you're not for that kind of liberation you're not for socialism so i'll stop there uh, those are really my comments on these issues so I can scroll down. Thank you so much again. Support me on Patreon if you can. You know, around the fall, I'm going to be trying to become more independent because I, I mean, I need a break. I know, I know all of you probably feel this way too. The COVID-19 pandemic uh, with the shutdowns and the economic crisis and the, the mass death and all of this stuff. I mean, I'm burnt. I'm spent. Uh, I know so many of you probably are too. It's been a really rough last year and a half now, almost, right? And so, yeah, I need to take some time off. I need, um, you know, uh, I need to figure out stuff. And one of the things I really want to figure out is how to be independent. So support my Patreon. 
if you can, because uh, that allows me to continue to do this work and to put more time into it. Like to be able to not just come on here, but to come in here, like prepare with notes and points. I, you know, I can speak off the cuff and I think I do an okay job at it, but I'm a preparation guy. I like to write. I like to do monologues. I like, I like that sort of thing. So, you know, it allows me more opportunities to do that. It's, it's hard. It's, it's a lot of work, um, but I do it for the people. And so, you know, I do it for the vast majority of people, right? That That's whose interests I feel like I, first of all, sit within. I, that's their interests or my interests, but those are the interests I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for theirs. I'm fighting for peace, socialism, fighting against racism. That's, that's what I do. Um, so uh, I'm just going to go through this. Ask any questions, subscribers on Patreon, you know, make yourself known if you have a question. I'll get to you first. So hello, hello, LME. Thanks for joining. Question. Okay, so I got, will, will I be your guide to China? Uh, to whatever man? Yeah, I want to learn Mandarin. I want to go back. Uh, there's a trip planned in June of next year. Don't know if financially I'm going to be able to do it, but I really want to go. I think Code Pink is going to go. I think some DSA folks are going to go. And I, and I really want to go if possible. They're going to go to Xinjiang. And I want to go. So stay tuned. Question, is it clear by now that most ethnic communities, towns created in the 1950s and 60s, Vietnamese, Cuban, Koreans, simply allowed the USA, it simply were allowed in the USA because they lost CIA-backed wars? I mean, that's a huge part of it. So thank you for bringing up Korea too, because uh, I didn't even talk about them, but that's definitely a huge part of it, right? So brain drain was a huge thing for the United States and CIA, yes, was a huge part of that. It was a huge CIA, CIA strategy to try to undermine socialist revolutions because Korea, Vietnam, and Cuba, that's what they were experiencing post- China, you know, post-1949 Chinese Revolution, post-1917 uh, Russian Revolution. Those were the countries that were in the midst of their struggle as the larger world socialist struggle was happening. And, and for sure, brain drain was a huge part. That's why a lot of the f those folks who have emigrated from those countries end up being in the intelligentsia, end up being in the former landlord class, uh, so-called bourgeois classes which was were not really very developed, right? They weren't very, you couldn't call them hugely wealthy, but in the context of what they were in, they were the exploiters, the compradors. And a lot of them, well, I'm not going to say all because, you know, the numbers are unclear, but, you know, I'm Vietnamese myself. I know, I know the community a bit and I know that that's huge background. A lot of them do not like, like the community in Boston. Uh, you, I have a lot of Ho Chi Minh shirts. I go over there with them forget about it, right? I'm going to be seen as persona non grata because Ho Chi Minh is seen as a quote unquote dictator. He butchered all these people. Ho Chi Minh was one of the revolutionary leaders of the country and those so-called people he was butchering was really the uh, National Liberation Front of Vietnam defending the country from intervention, which even in my family, I know, it, you know, they, they were defending that intervention because they wanted to keep their privileges. Colonialism is not just about um, no matter how sophisticated white supremacy and settler colonialism here in the United States, where it feels like it's all about white Americans getting theirs or white people getting theirs, it's also about maintaining control 
of the colony, of the nation, by ensuring that there is a class of people. The United States didn't do this too well for a while, right? The United States wasn't too good at this until it learned the lesson. Uh, post-revolution, so-called revolution, post-quote-unquote independence, learn the lesson that Africans are very rebellious, colonized people are very rebellious. They're not going to just sit down and, you know, be mutilated and suppressed and oppressed and exploited to the point of starvation and death and addiction, etc. People are going to rise up. And so you have to have this comprador class, this elite that represents the the great Franz Fanon talked about it as uh, the uh, you know national bourgeoisie, right? This kind of um, someone who rep- who who's who's indigenous maybe to the nation, but also represents the interests of the foreign power, uh, the neo-colonialists, as Kwame Nkrumah put it. So, indeed, a lot of <laughs> the vast majority, I would say, are so. Let's keep going. Um, was there a troll here? Oh, free Cuba, free Hong Kong, free Tibet. All right. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for taking care of that. Um, okay. So, yeah. No, I don't see any questions here, guys. Um, <laughs> who am I rooting for tonight? The NBA. I got to tell you, I'm an Eastern Conference guy. I'm from Boston. And so I hate the Bucks. I, I really hate the Bucks because they've been, I mean, they've been slamming the Celtics for several years now. Whenever they play them, regular season playoffs, it's been very unfortunate. But I'm rooting for the Bucks only because, and I'll tell you why, because there's a bit of a political component to this. So I'll talk about it a little bit. If you watch the sports, I, I watch sports media, my wife and I dabble in it. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a nice little wake up thing because they're they're so obnoxious. Sports media is like the pinnacle of corporate media banter, right? But it's a little more tolerable because it's about sports than like CNN or anything else like that. I don't have to listen to talking heads of the CIA on there, even though ostensibly all of them are influenced by, by those forces. But I listened to them talking about Giannis Atatakumpo and it makes me angry, right? Because there is this incessant nationalism, right? This imperialist nationalism that the LA sports media holds on to. And they talk about Giannis Atatakumpo as this soft, uh, nice, soft guy who can't get it done. And he's not that talented, even though he's one of the top five NBA players in the league. He's not that talented. He's just a hustler. He just out hustles everyone. And there's this very troubling narrative about him that I just, just can't get over. Yeah, he can't shoot jump shots. Because I was a jump shooter back in high school. Uh, you know, I had NBA dreams. And that's what I would do. I would get up at 5 a.m., practice like hell. I mean, one of the reasons why I write so much is because this is just how I am. When I do something, I really want to do it. I commit myself. I try to be disciplined. That's how it was when I was playing basketball. That's how it is when I write and when I do uh, my work, my political work, as best I can. Of course, it leads to burnout sometimes. But that's in a whole other story because I did burn out from basketball. So it's always a balance and a struggle. But the way to talk about Giannis, I just can't stomach it. 
He's a great player. He's killed the Celtics over and over and over again. And I've watched it over and over and over again. He's a great player. He's an amazing player. So the way that he gets hated on by the LA corporate sports media, FS1, for example, to me is just, it's just ludicrous. So I don't have a really a dog in the fight. I'd love to see Chris Paul get a ring, even though I totally think he's a, a business unionist with abhorrent uh, politics when it comes to the establishment and how he deals as a union boss um, with the NBA. You know, he was the one pushing the return early that led to all these injuries, including his own. He was the one talking to Obama to end the strike, right? He's he's a problem. You know, the State Farm commercials that everyone talks about being so amazing. Dude is literally just selling himself to insurance. So, you know, Politically, yeah, uh, but I, Chris Paul's been playing. He's an amazing player. He deserves to win. That's a long-winded answer to I'm rooting for the Bucks only because I want to see the LA corporate media, sports media, eat their words when it comes to Giannis. I think he just works so hard, and you know he's got a demeanor that I can relate to, right? He's this, like, quote-unquote, nice guy, but also he's, like, really tough, and he, he does – I feel like he struggles a lot and works hard he's disciplined and he's just not really flashy he's not the guy that they want to see he also uh plays for milwaukee which is a quote-unquote small market and so he's not gonna make the money profits super profits and, and and so he yeah so i'm rooting for him because of all that um anyway i'm gonna keep on going uh because i could talk about the nba forever um going on rich i know you're a fellow patron subscriber thanks for coming um let's see let's see any more questions yes somebody said would love to go to cuba a uh, bitter pill hello hello you should go i want to go back it was not long enough it was so unfortunate that it had to be a short trip uh again i'm moving again in september which is going to be I've moved like seven times. I post on Twitter. You might've seen it. I moved like seven times in the last seven years. I've worked like five jobs in that time. It's, it's been, um, I mean, this is like, I'm a millennial. I'm a, I'm a working class, quote unquote, working class millennial. I can tell you life, life is hard, man. I mean, it's, I'm not going to say that I'm like suffering to the extent that others are. I know, you know, I know that there are layers to this thing, so but it's tough, man. It's tough to make all those moves and stuff. And that was happening actually when I had to go to Cuba. I couldn't stay for longer because of ridiculous housing issues. Um, so let me. What books did you read to get where you are, Danny? Hey, whatever, man. Yeah. Well, many books and. Actually, you know, the first book I probably read was from, you know, someone who, um, you know, I won't get into it. Uh, he's gone into it on his channel, uh, Dr. Jared Ball, which is fine, but I'm not going to get into it because that's not how I am. I'm not like, you know, uh, so there's been disagreements, but his book, I mix what I like, a mixtape manifesto, although he's very critical of it. Uh, that really exposed me to a lot of these theorists, um, Franz Fanon, 
and other revolutionary black anti-colonial thinkers, you know, Cesare, Amy Cesare, you know, like, um, that was very influential for me to be exposed to anti-colonialism. But then, you know, I read books like To Die for the People by Huey Newton, Asada Shakur's autobiography. It was really the Black Liberation Movement that kind of got me into revolutionary politics first. And there's a very specific reason for that. And I'll get more into books, more book suggestions. So those are really the first, like To Die for the People by Huey P. Newton, Asada Shakur's autobiography, uh, you know, Dr. Ball's book. Um and yeah, to be exposed to anti-colonial thinkers and anti, you know, capitalist uh, thinkers and, and revolutionaries, socialists uh, in on the black left, uh, those those that was the beginning, and it was very specific. I had a teacher who was in like SDS, a white teacher in like kind of like the SDS Black Power movement scene in DC, and. When I was in Occupy, I was here in New York in 2011. Occupy Wall Street was happening. I was interning for a labor union. And I was getting burnt out because, uh, you know, I I came into that scene wanting to also, you know, wanting to figure out more about class, but wanting to be true to my origins and getting into the struggle, which were all about race. And I knew it was limited, right? I knew... The time I was going in that I needed to learn more about class. I needed to learn more about power because just focusing on race, which the Democratic Party loves to do, which liberals love to do, neoliberals, it's very limited. It will limit not only your vision, but it will limit your activity. That's what it did for me. So I was burnt out. Just railing against white people doesn't really do much, especially because man, white people will get mobilized, right? They will get ready, send you the threats. They That's just how... It is. Um, so when I was in New York City and I know, you know, the labor movement, Occupy Wall Street movement, they were struggling hard with this question of race. And I was just like, man, can we connect the two? Is it possible? Because everyone I grew up with who was black was working class and struggled more than my white counterparts. Is there a way that we can bridge this race versus class and make it about race and class and, and and what that says about the United States as a society and as a social system. And so my teacher from high school who, you know, I never really talked about politics before, but we were still close and talking and he told me about his political experiences and he suggested I read Huey P. Newton Black Panther literature. And so I started to do that and it was really incredibly helpful. And that's how I actually got turned on to internationalism right? Reading the Black Panther Party's 19, I think it was 1967. Uh, oh, man, I might be wrong. I think it might be 1969, where they sent the letter to the uh, National Liberation Front of Vietnam. But I could be wrong about that, too. But I read that letter sent by the Black Panther Party, offering their bodies to the Vietnamese um, in the struggle against the United States. And that got me turned on to wanting to figure out, well, who, why were they doing that? What, what was the struggle in Vietnam all about. Then they would cite Marx, Lenin, Engels, Mao, say Zedong. So I started to read them as well. So I would not hesitate. Read State and Revolution by Vladimir Lenin. Read uh, 
the communist manifesto by Karl Marx read Frederick Engels's state, uh, the origins of private property, family and the state read socialist texts, because that's what really did get me to where I am. I, a lot of people suggest Michael Parenti these days, and I would highly suggest it too. He's very good of succinct analyses of socialism, imperialism, good for beginners as well. He's very basic. Jesus, sorry about that, guys. Uh, there is obviously a lot of activity tonight um, where I live, so sorry about that. But yeah, I would say those are the books that got me started and just off what I know. But yeah, Franz Fanon was very influential for me. Uh, a Dying Colonialism was actually, to me, more pro profound for me than uh, Wretched of the Earth, which everyone suggests, and I also suggest it, but A Dying Colonialism, you get this very firsthand take of what it was like of an anti-colonial struggle, like what was being waged in Algeria at the time, and how Algerians, how the anti-colonial forces organized and what it meant for social culture, political culture. Um, those are the kind of books I really like, books like that where you get a sense of the struggle as it's happening. And, you know, I would highly recommend speeches from Fidel Castro. Um, I, to me, he's an incredible orator and actually has some great analyses of Latin America and the history. So you can find you can find that at places like Marxist.org. But but yeah, no, there there's so much. And, you know, of course, you know, subscribers to my Patreon have message me for these these types of requests and and I spend a little bit more time so that's off the cuff and I can spend a little bit more time um, if you want to email me you can do that if you can't subscribe to my patreon but uh, subscribers on my patreon know some of them might be here that if you ask me a question I try to really answer it um, as best I can so so that's definitely a good a good one thank you uh, what can you expect from a left movement that has no continued education of how to be because they were completely wiped out? for almost a century oh that's not really a question that sounds like a rhetorical question um yeah i mean yeah no it's it's true it's it's been a long process of uh, kind of annihilation and repression of the left and uh, there is a crisis of political education this economic crisis this political crisis it creates a crisis of political education and consciousness as People are becoming more desperate. Um, and when people become more desperate, they're less able to do things like really figure out how to approach white supremacy in the real way. You get confused by the Congressional Black Caucus and the Blackness leadership class that we talk about in Black Agenda Report. They steer politics in the direction of the Democratic Party and to their so-called woke imperialism and... Uh, corporations, nonprofits begin to co-opt the struggle. And then you have ordinary working class people, uh, especially black working class people who are honestly the targets of things like mass incarceration and police violence to such high degrees. And then the joblessness and all of this creates a very difficult terrain from which to organize in. And, I, and I've been a labor organizer in unions for a long time in my sh relatively short life. I mean, I've been you know, in three different unions now. And I can tell you that in even in, in that struggle, uh, there has been a lot of repression as well. I mean, some of you may know about the witch hunt and the red baiting and the McCarthyism 
the impact of that from beginning in 1919 about all the way into the 1960s. And then by then the labor movement was pretty much firmly um, in the hands of what Lenin called the labor aristocracy. That process literally had within it legislation like the Taft-Hartley Act, which cemented red baiting inside of unions to the point where still to this day, people have to sign cards, sign papers saying they won't join the communist party. Um, and that's had a huge impact because the labor, much of the labor leadership is uh, wholly anti-communist and against things like even Medicare for all this lightweight policy for universal ish healthcare they're against because they don't want to see their privileges being lost or their identity of winning mediocre corporate based insurance and the political connections that bring you see that a lot of labor leaders actually go against it so um so it says my work he's done doing great and he's confirming a type this is the kind of leftist. Hey, hey, thanks, LME. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I, I I think one of the things that hurts me and that hurts, I think it hurts anyone who's genuinely anti-imperialist. Um, in this moment, it's been the China question, to, to be honest. If I just talked about Syria, Russia, for example, I think my work would gain a lot more traction. I think the work of a lot of other people would also gain more traction. I have comrades, Carlos Martinez and others would gain a lot more traction if they weren't so fervently opposed to U.S. imperialism against China and weren't afraid, right? And I think a lot of people are scared. They don't want to admit it, but I know firsthand and I would never out people. That's just not how I am. But I know firsthand from doing this, I pitch, guys, I pitch, I throw it out there. Hey, guys, let's talk about this issue. And some people say, yeah, but I can tell you I've had experiences where my work literally doesn't go up after, let's say, a live stream because it's China, because, uh-oh, ratio time, right? So, so that is a huge predicament, and it's one that we haven't figured out yet. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to have a higher profile only in the sense that this would move the movement forward i'm not really looking that for that for myself to be honest i don't want i don't want to be i'll just say it outright i don't i don't want to be a youtuber with hundreds of thousands of subscribers and, and doing that that's just not it's not me but yeah whatever will get the work out there is certainly i'm all for um whatever will get the politics out there um I don't see many questions. This is an ask me anything, guys. So you can definitely do that. You know, we're coming up on the hour. Definitely, you know, if you have any more questions, you can email me. Uh, you know, go to Black Agenda Report, find my email. I don't wake up, rise up, nineteen ninety at gmail .com. But definitely subscribe to my Patreon helps, and I'm much more responsive over that because uh, all of our emails are inundated with garbage now. But um, also, yeah, it's just a lot harder for me to keep up through that. But I, I check my uh, Patreon a lot more. So I don't see many other question marks. Um, <laughs> nobody cares about Saga or Crystal's hit take. <laughs> Are they really hit? I mean, yeah, uh, it's true. Like, we need... We for sure need to do better with 
leveraging these platforms for the movement and for the struggle for liberation that's why i'm on here i mean i'm not on here to just pontificate um yeah no thanks <laughs> thanks uh vega i agree with that yeah i do want a higher following but yeah youtube yeah these platforms are not gonna let us get it right we have to come together and i advocate that actually in a recent article that you know it, it was very important for me to write because i was feeling so at this time when i wrote it, it was, it's a june 16th article it's titled independent media is political to a defense of state or publicly funded media and in that i talk a lot about um, individualism right and how that really fuels a lot of what happens here on youtube even amongst the most left of us and you know what we talk about the rising and and crystal and sager you know they they were working for a corporate outlet they were they were making decisions and to be honest I, sager was always a, a he's, he's right wing i mean if he was conservative populism they, they make up so many terms but he's very explicit about where he stands on things and that's the one thing i guess i appreciate but if we don't understand where that that means he's not really for the working classes not really for the oppressed. he says he's for the working class but all of his solutions are would never lead to anything good for the working class. oh bring all the production home sorry that's not how capitalism works we need socialism oh no we can't have socialism because china because communism because this uh we, we can have universal health care somehow under far right or right-wing presidents it doesn't make any sense but um we have to just be honest about what we're trying to do and, and people don't want to do that because that's bad for brands i mean I, i'll be honest i mean i don't i i know that a lot of folks this is their work this is their world but a lot of us i mean a lot of you who are watching this myself we gotta work in jobs shit jobs right uh these post-industrial neoliberal capitalist jobs low wage and and they don't, they don't pay enough so we got to do that and those who are trying to make careers out of this thing uh or who have already made careers out of this thing they they have to negotiate a lot so you know when people so they, they see china and they see china's getting a lot of negative attention and it could hurt their algorithms and ratios and all that and they say nah i can't can't talk about china but me i'm sorry but 1.4 billion people and the future of humanity in the world and um which direction should the world go in and uh potentially stopping a nuclear proliferation that's very important to me so i'm always going to talk about china for as long as u.s imperialism exists i know that that's going to be a huge uh it's just going to be a huge point of contention and it's going to just shape so much so yeah no i'm i am never going to compromise my politics for whatever goes on here but uh for sure we need to negotiate this uh figure it out so yeah you know what perspectives are most needed in left media right now in your opinion what's missing in the leftist conversation what needs more attention oh <laughs> you're asking 
huge questions LME, but you know what? They are incredible questions. Okay. What needs more attention in the left media? Hmm. Well, I will say that uh, I'm a communist, so I'm very explicit about that politically. I'll say that I think this question of socialism and communism needs better attention. Because honestly, this model, and I don't disrespect, I think there are very talented journalists out there, people who I call dear friends and even comrades, right, who are doing news, who are doing, I don't, I'm not a newsy guy, I'll comment on all the news, but I'm not going to report the news. And I think there's been an overemphasis on that, because that will build followers and channels and whatever. But we need analysis and we need analysis on these big questions like white supremacy, for example. White supremacy, right? I don't want to hear this awful debate that I've had to listen to because I was trying to keep my ear to the Bernie followers, Sanders followers, these Democratic Party left-ish elements. I was trying to pay attention to what they were doing, where they would go, how I could insert myself and try to push things forward. We wanted to, I mean, Margaret and I talk about this a lot. We want to create a break, a rupture from the Democratic Party because that's what we need so bad. But I had to hear over and over and over again, the white working class, the white working class, race is so divisive. Why are we talking about race? Oh, but black young people, they are for everything that Bernie Sanders is for. So race is not really an issue. And it just drove me just, it just drew me, it, it just like, it just ate at me because it was a total avoidance of a real question. A real question that the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, is very attentive to, which is racism and white supremacy. They know that this is the central contradictions of the, contradiction of the United States. The, the bourgeoisie knew that they had to respond to the, what, millions of people who marched in the streets and the, the protesters who burned the Minneapolis police station down. They had to pay attention to them because they knew over the course of the United States' history, it's always been the struggle for black liberation that has represented the biggest threat to the upkeep and the maintenance of this imperialist and racist empire, this imperialist, capitalist, and racist empire. That's the truth. But if the left, and unfortunately, much of the left who's most vocal out here, it's mainly the white left, they want to avoid white supremacy. They don't want to talk about it. They don't even want to debate it. They don't see it. Even, some of them probably don't see it as their place to. They don't want to. They don't want to divide. They they think that. I mean, a lot of people think that Trump supporters or something are going to come onto their side for some of the Bernie Sanders social Democrat ish demands like Medicare for all. That they're all going to bring this big coalition that's going to bring this about fantasy world. This shows a detachment from material reality. What really, you don't need even a lot of people <laughs> to come together around these things. Uh, you just need a critical mass of people, of those who are the most advanced, to then take others with you. You don't approach things as, I'm going to capitulate to the right by avoiding white supremacy and act like that's not going to have consequences. It has big consequences. And so we need to talk about white supremacy in a real way, as a root cause as a root problem as it I, I hate the word systemic but a systemic problem as inherent to capitalism 
itself, right? Malcolm X said, there is no racism without capitalism, right? So until we address racism, we can't address capitalism. The reason why we don't have Medicare for all, the reason why we don't have a quote unquote Green New Deal, the reason why we've never had universal policies in the United States other than Social Security and Medicare, which honestly had uh, difficult roots themselves and even just being able to get off the ground and be a universal policy for everybody. Uh, the rampant discrimination uh, based on job classification that affected black people. And, you know, we know that job discrimination ensures that black people make the least on social security. <clears throat> but it's that it's, it's racism and white supremacy, which l literally creates the seeds for the most vicious kind of austerity that exists here in the United States. And no one's talking about it. So that's one thing I really hope. And I want to be a part of that. I want, of course, more so my black comrades and, and my comrades from oppressed nationalities and, and, and uh, sectors of society around the world to be a part of that conversation and lead it. But that's what needs to happen. That's what I think needs to happen next in the media sphere. And so, you know, in my article, I can also just talk about LME, you know, in that question that you asked, what needs to be focused on, you know, in my article about independent media is political too. I talk about we have an opportunity in this struggle against imperialism and how imperialism has gone after quote unquote state affiliated media. I ask readers and I ask people who, who ingest independent media, follow it to remember that we are right now at the apex of privatization here in the United States that these platforms are really a product of media privatization. So when we talk about the Telecommunications Act and all these mergers and these multinational corporations, uh, media corporations, we're talking about being at the most advanced stage of privatization and imperialism. And that's infected the media to the point where we are, we are using these platforms to try to leverage them for our struggles. But we need to think beyond that. We need to think about a vision of how we work together, right, organizationally. Without organization and political struggles and mass movements, there is no movement, right? Mobilization won't do it. Advocacy doesn't do it. You need to be organized. And so the media, independent media folks, we need to figure that out. And I want to be a part of that in the future, you know, as we continue to, to do our work. How do we come together and learn some lessons? And I think the, for me, I propose just one example of how we could start to have a conversation about what public media would look like again, what a people's media would look like, because we've never had a people's media. We've had public media. We ostensibly have it here in the United States now, but it's not very public and it's not much. It's, it's also a, a byproduct of nefarious forces. And, and you know what I'm talking about, PBS, NPR, uh, they only have like 30% or less of their budgets funded publicly and the rest come from private NGOs and corporate donors and military contractors. And so they're also beholden to corporations. But what would it mean for us to have a people's media, a public media? And I say, first, get in the battle to defend state-affiliated media, China, Cuba, um, Russia, Iran, all have states, quote, quote unquote, state-owned media. 
And I just want to ask people, what do you, what do they think that is? CGTN, Xinhua, um, in China, Press TV in Iran, RT. They're not all 100% public, but they are public media organizations in the sense that, sense that the government has a majority stake in those companies. And that means that they're nationalized. That means that the state is in control. And so we should get to defending that. That's part of the reason why they're demonized. It's not just because they're um, repeating the government's messages, right? And then undermining democracy, like RT is accused of a lie, CGTN, etc. Xinhua was one of the first organs of the Communist Party of China before the revolution. I think it was founded in 1936 during the Long March. Zhou Enlai was a huge part of founding that. He ran the paper for a while. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, everyone loves Deng Xiaoping in the United States. A lot of these so-called these Maoists hate him, but he was huge in, in, as an editor of a lot of major media outlets that the Communist Party was running to reach the masses of people. And so a lot of the state-owned outlets that you hear of, they have roots like that. You know, I don't know about RT, but, you know, the, they have roots in processes, anti-imperialist processes. So we need to defend them and then understand what it means to be public and for the people in a way that's organized. We can do our own projects. We can have our own projects and that's fine. But if we're not organized, then we aren't going to have the impact that we need to have. We're not going to be able to reach as many people. We need to be connected to movements and people's struggles. And so that's why I hope we can focus on. So that, I would say, LME, is what needs more attention. So I, I answer your question, big questions with, I hope, pretty big answers uh, that I, I honestly don't even have the answer to questions about what that would look like. But... We're going to work on it together. Um, we're going to get through this together. So I don't see any other questions. Been, you know, I've been on here for a while now, almost an hour and 15 minutes. I'm a basketball fan, so I want to watch the game. You know, my wife's out with friends who a few are staying over. And um, I am probably going to peace out. But with that said, I'm going to have a lot of announcements coming up for me personally because I will need more support, uh, economic situation again, tight, tough. New York City is expensive as hell, and I put in a lot of work, and so I'm hoping that people will help me out a little bit more as I put in more hours to this kind of work. I'm hoping to take a little bit of a break this coming fall, maybe the winter. And yeah, with that said, yeah, I'm going to have announcements coming up. I'll, I'll share them publicly as much as I can, but I share them mostly with subscribers on Patreon about these kind of things. Um, but I'll share them publicly as it's appropriate. But, um, you know, Margaret and I are discussing, we're trying to pin down a date to have Jamima Pierre, a great friend of Black Gender Report, talk about Haiti. Um, that's coming up. And my next article, I'm going to talk about some economics. So I'm going to talk about why Joe Biden is wrong and capitalism is in capitalist competition is in fact exploitation. He recently with these really weak regulations that he proposed as, as an executive order, which who knows how far those will go. But, you know, some things about mergers and 
and, and some things that will, I, you know, maybe imports from Canada medicines help a little bit, you know, certainly will help a little bit, not a lot, won't change the calculus at all in the United States. It won't really improve people's lives significantly, but it will probably do enough to keep his approval rating high enough among liberals to remain legitimate. Maybe it'll strengthen the hand of the Democrats in the midterms. Maybe, just maybe. But the point is, is that I am going to be talking about capitalism and competition. Now, capitalist competition, despite what libertarians want to tell you, everyone, capitalist competition is inherently exploitative. It inherently leads to monopoly and to imperialism because capitalists are looking to cut costs. They're looking to cut workers. They're looking to make super profits. They're looking to consolidate technology because technology is money. It's not just innovation. It's money. It's capital. It's organic. It's the organic composition of capital, which is what Marx uh, talks about a lot. And so I'm going to explain these things and explain why Joe Biden is wrong about capitalist competition. So you can follow that article coming out next week. Um, I come out with previews of my articles on Patreon every week. Uh, I give a little snippet for you all. I'll try to take snippets maybe of this live stream as well and um, get those out. But but yeah, it's going to be quite hectic. Still looking for apartments and stuff for um, next month in September. So um, yeah, uh, thanks everyone for coming. Appreciate um uh yes and just call me toast what you say about capitalism there increase in production reduces prices means they have to sell more beyond the national market but capitalism already and i'll explain this in the article it already does that overproduction is inherent to the system so the more capitalists cannot possibly sell back the value that's produced by workers because workers cannot possibly consume that value and that leads to these cyclical crises but as production costs increase right of course capitalists are looking to offset those costs but there's only so much you can do and that weighs down profits in the aggregate so you have jeff bezos and read the article but you have jeff bezos and warren buffett they're getting massively rich they're getting massively rich during a pandemic and an economic crisis because they're siphoning from speculation and um, super exploitation like Amazon. But in the aggregate, profits for the capitalist class as a whole end up going down because in effect, this competition, this monopoly, this uh, race to invest in technology to increase exploitation actually ends up being a drag on the system. They call it the fall, fall in the rate of profit very interesting concept that i love a lot to discuss but um maybe for another time but uh yeah so um one yeah one can get super chats with the number danny has a, uh yeah i don't I, we haven't monetized this channel it's it's a point of debate and contention you know there's pros and cons um we will continue to discuss it though and um yeah maybe we'll do that soon but uh I, that's why i always say support black agenda report directly and support uh, my patreon directly i think that's the best way to help i know not everyone can do monthly but you know um that's the best way to help if you can so thank you so much everyone for coming um 
and you know have a good night and um yeah peace out everyone